Welcome to From What If to What Next, the podcast where we demand the impossible and hopefully help you to realise that maybe it's not quite as impossible after all. If this is your first time here, you've got a lot of catching up to do, and I hope this episode might inspire you to immerse yourself in our archive of conversations, our incredibly rich collection of delicious explorations of the what-if questions that matter. Today's podcast is also being recorded visually in order to be shown as part of the Creative Bureaucracy Festival, so we're honoured to be able to contribute to that too. And while we're on the subject of contributing, this is my opportunity to tell you that From What If to What Next is only made possible by the remarkable folks who contribute to support us at patreon.com slash from what if to what next and who for the price of a cup of coffee a month enable us to do this. In return they get episodes the moment they're released plus our much loved bonus Ministry of Imagination episodes plus other occasional goodies too such as our recent chat with Max Haven. And if you enjoy today's conversation do consider subscribing it really helps. Thanks. Today we're bringing together two amazing activists and thinkers. We're recording this episode a couple of weeks after Extinction Rebellion's two-week Impossible Rebellion, an incredible fortnight of very visible activism in London. And I've noticed over these many months of COVID in online talks and workshops that I've given or attended that everyone is trying to figure out, as the forces driving the world towards extinction becoming increasingly brazen, shameless, unaccountable, ruthless and corrupt, how best to respond. I meet with XR groups wondering if they should be more like transition groups, transition groups wondering if they should be more like XR groups, and so on and so on. And yet rarely do we stop and reflect on the extent to which, as activists, we are entangled in the very structures and systems we're trying to change, how how we do things might be impacting what we do or try to do. Activism is a world which often, in spite of working to change the world, ends up recreating it. It's patterns of dysfunction, rates of burnout, unhealthy working practices, power over relationships. Might it be that we get stuck in patterns where we react against perceived injustice but never really recognise how we embody those same injustices, indeed how we also manifest them unconsciously in how we move through the world. Can we as activists find the tools to, as one of our guests today puts it, to understand that transforming ourselves is inherently part of transforming the world? Our question, therefore, for today's conversation is, what if activists paid attention to their own development as well as the problems of the world? I couldn't be more pleased with the two phenomenal guests that we have here today. Anthea Lawson is a campaigner and author who's worked on campaigns to shut down tax havens, prevent banks from facilitating corruption and environmental devastation, and control the arms trade. At Global Witness, she launched a prize-winning campaign that changed the rules on secret company ownership and resulted in new laws in dozens of countries. She began her working life as a reporter at the Times newspaper. Her recent book, The Entangled Activist, is about why activists so often end up recreating the problems they are trying to fix and how we we might begin to look at the task of changing the world differently. And Alistair McIntosh has been described by the BBC as one of the world's leading environmental campaigners. A pioneer of modern land reform in Scotland, he helped to bring the Isle of Egg into community ownership. On the Isle of Harris, he negotiated the withdrawal of the world's biggest cement company, Lafarge, from a devastating super quarry plant. 
He then served, unpaid to avoid conflicts of interest, on the company's sustainability stakeholder panel for 10 years to help further social, corporate social and environmental responsibility. He guest lectures on non-violence at the military staff colleges, including for over two decades on some of the UK Defence Academy's most senior courses. His books include Soul and Soil, People versus Corporate Power, and most recently The Brilliant Riders on the Storm. He's a Quaker with an interfaith outlook, focusing much of his work around spirituality. He's a founding trustee of the Galgale Trust, which works with poverty, community and human potential, and an honorary professor in the College of Social Sciences at Glasgow University. Welcome, both of you, to From What If to What Next. It's such a delight to have you both here. Thank you, Rob. Thanks very much. It's an absolute honour and a real pleasure. So I'd like to start with the exercise that we always use to start this podcast by inviting you to step into my time machine. It's just over here. You just can't quite see it. It's this thing over here. I'm adjusting it to make the settings for, for 2030. There we are. So I'm going to invite you and everybody who's listening to uh, close your eyes and to get comfortable. And you can do this if you're listening or, or wherever you are. And I'd like to invite you to imagine that you're leaving 2021 and that you're now moving through 2022. The years are rushing by you like wind over your face. 2025, 2026, 2027. These years that you passed through were incredible. And although it didn't look likely in 2021, they turned out to be a time of profound and extraordinary change. A time when everything that could possibly have been done was done. And as you arrive here in 2030 and step out of the time machine into a world in which, among many other great transformations, activists now pay attention to their own development as well as to the problems of the world, I'd love to hear your reflections on how that world appears to you. How is it different from the one that you left? What does it smell like and taste like and feel like? What do you see? How are its qualities different to 2021? Anthea, maybe you could start us off. Thanks. So in 2030, when we set out to change something about the world, we're now starting with an acknowledgement that we're part of the world. We're not separate from its problems. So we're not beginning by pronouncing righteously about what's wrong. We're acknowledging how we too may have been shaped by the stories that we're trying to change. We recognise the stories that have shaped us, like the individualism that has long run deep in the culture and the desire perhaps to be the hero who saves the day. We're recognising our own emotional needs that we might bring to our activism, our need to be right, our need to gain status and recognition from what we do, our need to make ourselves feel better. And we recognise that emphasising how wrong our opponents are doesn't necessarily make us a better person and nor does it make them any more likely to listen to us. We recognise that we may have benefited in historical and intergenerational ways from the inequalities and injustices that we're trying to change. And we recognise that someone with lived experience of a problem might know more about it than our education can ever teach us. So when we're working to turn an economy based on endless consumption and endless growth into something more sane, we recognise that that same imperative to keep on working until we burn out might run through us too. So we watch out for it now, in each other and in our collective efforts. And when we're working towards justice and equality, we're recognising that the potential to dominate and control each other is in all of us and can arise when we're least aware. 
and we're becoming much more alert to it when it happens in our movements, and we're better supporting each other to remain in connection. And so in 2030, when we begin our activism from these recognitions, that there's work for us as an integral part of our work in changing the world, amazing things are happening. We're speaking more clearly about what needs to change without having to overreach. When we're not being righteous and blaming others, we're now more likely to be heard. We're more able to hold conversations with people who are starting in a different place from us. We can hold our ground without having to cling so tightly to our ideology and position, making it easier to truly stand for something and not just in opposition to what we don't want. And in 2030, activism has become more of a part of life. Speaking up about what matters is part of being a citizen, not just something done by specific groups. And in all of these ways, we're, we're bringing change, a change that's embodied in our own way of being and that affects all of the people we're in conversation with and ripples outwards from there. And also in 2030, these things aren't just happening in what we these days call campaigning, whether that's protest or community action or professional settings. It's happening in politics too, because a lot of the righteousness and demonisation that was going on in activism back in 2021, that was also happening those days in politics too. And now, in 2030, by attending to their own development, people speaking to each other across political divides are able to do so in a way that is more generative and they can find common ground more easily. Beautiful. <clears throat> wow, there's a 2030 to long for. Uh, Alistair, how, what, what, what would you say? Mm -hmm. Anthea, thank you. I agree with every word of what you said and I'm going to try and not repeat what you've just said. I should just explain that I'm at my wife's parents' home in the south of French of France, Ferenc Nicholas. My wife is French. And my mother-in-law, who is from a Protestant background, nevertheless has learned to paint icons. So I'm sitting in her study and surrounded by the saints here that she has been painting, as you can see on the wall behind me. But that's very relevant because that is about the great chain of being. That is about the recognition of our profound interconnection to one another. And as 2021 moved into 2022, 2023, and the world still battled with successive waves of COVID and the knock-on effects of it, we came to understand how deep that interconnection is that we can no longer live in a world where we only think about ourselves or the rich countries pull up the drawbridge and get on with their consumerism while the poor die. Because what the virus is teaching us is that you can't hide at the molecular level. The virus is teaching us that unless we care for everyone on this planet. We all become impoverished. So the virus had knock-on effects into how we related to climate change. The virus helped to serve as a wake-up call, a stimulus to the human immune system, not just biologically, but also in consciousness in what the Haudenosaunee Six Nation Iroquois Confederacy in 1977, 
when they addressed the United Nations organizations in Geneva spoke of as a basic call to consciousness. So as the 2020s moved on, the sense of the importance of a one world consciousness expanded and it had a number of effects. First of all, greenhouse gas emissions can be simplified down, simplified very back of an envelope down to population multiplied by consumption, consumption in terms of its greenhouse gas emissions. And two things started to happen during the 2020s. First of all, those countries which already see their populations naturally falling quite dramatically. You have a country like Brazil at present with a fertility rate of about 1.7. Ireland is about two. Portugal, a Catholic country, only 1.2. Parts of India, below replacement rate. Those countries started to be followed by other countries who came to recognize that it was not a bad thing to lighten pressure on the earth, not by population control, the darling of the hard right that wants to blame everything on Indians and Chinese and that there are too many of them, but by the two main factors which naturally bring population to a more settled place, namely social justice, so that people are no longer in fear as to their security and feel a need to have big families as their insurance policy, and women's emancipation. Because when women have the vote, when women are educated, when women can participate fully economically, these are the main drivers that bring population into stability. But, but, but. Population is the only one factor. In my lifetime, I'm about to turn 66, born in 1955. Over my lifetime, world population has increased by just under three times. But CO2 emissions from consumerism, from our consumption, have increased sixfold. So consumption has been twice the problem of population. And of course, that is primarily driven by the rich and inconvenient truth for those rich who all say it's about too many Chinese or Indians. It's actually about too many high consumers. And this is where the second dynamic kicked in. Because as we started to deepen into our psychology and from there into our spirituality, which is to say our profound interconnection to one another and the earth, we started to realize that we didn't need more and more consumption to fill the emptiness inside. We started to understand that the emptiness was because of how we had become disconnected from one another in community and disconnected with the earth. And so things like land reform, which Scotland is pioneering, 3% of our land now in community ownership, some 500 land trusts in Scotland, Google Community Land Scotland, and you'll find out all about it. 
we started to realize that when people are able to recreate and become reconnected with communities of place, when people are able again to become real people in real places, the drivers to seek our satisfaction, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try. Those drivers to keep trying to buy a stairway to heaven start to decrease. And so by 2030, we are starting to see a more stabilized world because we are no longer consuming just to fill the psychological and spiritual emptiness to the same degree. And they are actually starting at a turning point where there are starting to be fewer of us consuming, which combined with technologies, with green technologies, means that our CO2 emissions are not yet anywhere near net zero, but they are quite radically decreasing. Thank you. Thank you both so much. <clears throat> Beautiful. So I'm going to start by asking a really big question, <laughs> which is if putting facts in front of people isn't enough to unlock the uprising, the, the, the massive shift that we need, as you both recognise in your books, and if we urgently need that kind of mass mobilisation across society, what might work? Like every, everybody feels like they're sort of fumbling around for, you know, I was on the streets with Extinction Rebellion there last weekend and you know, everybody's like, what, what does it take? What do we need to do? And I wonder through both of your work, what your sense is of, um, yeah, what, what do we need to do right now? What's the most skillful way forward from here? Anthea. Um, I think what I'm about to say comes from the perspective of having spent a long time trying to put facts in front of people um, and expect them to do things in response. Um, sometimes policymakers, sometimes the public, uh, more often policymakers in the work I was doing to get new laws. I, I've come to the conclusion and I've heard similar things from a lot of the uh, campaigners I've interviewed is we have to start speaking our truth from our hearts and being really honest about, about our own feelings because ultimately genuine communication from the heart rather than just sort of firing off facts at people and hoping that they'll do things are the way that we're going to, that we're going to reach people. You know, and there, you know, Extinction Rebellion is a movement that is, that is trying to do that in some aspects of what it's doing. Um, there are other aspects of what it's doing that's still saying, here are some facts and here are the really, really, really scary ones. You know, there's lots of interesting climate psychology that's suggesting that once you put people into a kind of triggered fear state, they're not going to be able to hear it anyway. So somehow we need to be in the state where we, where we can have the conversations and people are in a state where they can hear what we're saying. And, and connection is going to be the way to do that, I think. Mm. Thank you. Alistair? I think the only thing that can work is an activation of love, an opening of consciousness. Yes, technologies are hugely important. I'm a great fan of green technologies. We've got solar panels on our roof. They feed into an air-to-air -air source heat pump. We've got insulation on both our outside and inside walls of a Victorian terrace house. But even that has only reduced our domestic carbon footprint from 5.3 tonnes to just under 2 tonnes, which is great, but we're still churning out 2 tonnes a year just from our domestic use. So technology is important. But basically, it's got to be in our consciousness. 
what shifts that? You don't get this kind of an awareness where there is high affluence, where there is no suffering. I'm in France just now. You go into every small village. There's a war memorial. We're talking to my father-in-law last night. The bottle of wine had a brand name, 1938. He said that was when I was born. I don't mean the wine was 1938. It was just a brand. And I said to him, so do you remember the Second World War? And he opened up about the bombs falling and going down into the shelters, that kind of stuff. And a consequence of that suffering was that you had all these international agencies, you had all the lines of hope for the world, United Nations agencies in particular set out, which are now being degraded because there's not the political will to support that kind of one world internationalism. And here's where I think we really do have to learn from COVID. We really do have to take on board the suffering that maybe not those of us who have been fortunate are experiencing. But I'm sure most of us have lost friends through COVID or known friends who have really suffered. And we have to use this as our wake-up call. We have to look at what is happening to the earth. We have to look at the loss of green spaces, the loss of species, the desecration of our rivers, you name it. And treat that as our wake-up call. Don't waste it. Never let a crisis go to waste. Treat that as a wake-up call, a wake-up call to open up the channels of understanding and of love. Thank you. Thank you. And Alistair, you write very powerfully in Riders on the Storm about trauma. You talk about how it can hollow us out and lead to overconsumption in terms of in search of meaning. And you also write very movingly, I thought, about Donald Trump's mother and the island that she came from and the traumas that shaped it, which I really recommend to people. As activists, how can our own trauma play out, consciously or unconsciously? How does it shape the activists we become? And what might activism that really understood and integrated trauma look like, Alistair? Well, I grew up on the Isle of Lewis. My father was a a GP, a doctor there. And we grew up amongst Donald Trump's relatives. His mother emigrated from the Isle of Lewis in the 1930s. And talking about her in the village, we've counted at least seven layers of trauma that that woman experienced that led so many to leave the islands in the 1930s. The first layer was in the 1820s, when on two sides of Donald Trump's maternal line, the people were evicted from their land, the so-called Highland clearances, were kicked out of their land. You know, they were given hardly no notice. They had to sail to the end of my village, an area called Crossbust. Some of them lived in upturned boats, and they were the terrible toll of disease and suffering. And then they were moved to an area of the island where the sea was very exposed, where they lost a lot of men fishing. I think it was Donald Trump's um, either grandfather or great-grandfather was drowned. I forget the exact details, but basically a lot of trauma in that family from drowning. And then you had 
the First World War, which killed one in five young men on the island. And then at the end of the First World War, another 200 were drowned when a ship bringing them home hit rocks just five miles away from where Mary Ann McLeod, Mrs. Trump, grew up. Then you had the Spanish flu and the tuberculosis, both of which had probably come in with returning soldiers. And then you had out of an island of 30,000 mass immigration in the 1920s. 1923 alone, 1,000 mainly young men left for America. So who is she going to marry? So she took a chance. She went to America. She met Frederick Christ Trump. And the Donald was raised in a big house with servants, with parents who were too busy to have time for him. He was, I think you could say, given no boundaries, no context of learning empathy. The way that I look on it, Rob, is that people like me, we were held in the basket of the community. A basket is semi-permeable. It's not a trap. It's semi-permeable. It supports you. We were held in that basket. We were, you know, our headstrong tendencies were moderated by the community around us. Fishing, working the land, hunting, singing, all, all of the things you do to go into church and so on. It was a very religious community. But the, you know, Donald Trump, he, he would have had none of that. He was an islander out of the island. He, he wasn't held in that context. And something triggered off in him that went the way it did. Now, the way I see it, and the way I put it in the writers of the storm, is I talk about the four C's. That irrespective of where we come from, most of us are descended from people who would have been cleared off the land. You had the Highland clearances in Scotland. You also had the Lowland clearances. In England, it was called the enclosures, and they were pretty wholesalers, you know, stripping away of the common land from the common people. Same across other parts of Europe. Most of us have experienced that clearance, which is very significant because it is an uprooting from both place and community with one another. A consequence of that clearance is the second C, collapse, an inward psychological collapse where we no longer get our fulfillment from being communities of place. And instead, we have to buy it. We have to work for it. We have to conquer to get it. The Highlanders and Islanders who went to America you know, what did they do? They had to join the military or they, had, or they ran the slave plantations. They ran the slave plantations. And then when you do that kind of thing, of course you've got to be a racist, otherwise you can't live with yourself. And so that gets ingrained into your culture. So clearance, collapse, consumption. How do you fill that psychological, spiritual emptiness? You try to fill it with more and more stuff. It's, a, it's an addiction. It's like a drug addiction. What is the antidote to clearance, collapse, consumption? I believe it's community. Remaking community, both urban and rural, with land reform in the kind of ways that I've described. And that way, that way you start to recognise and to heal the trauma. Um, in Scotland, there's a big movement with the Scottish government and with civic organisations to become an ACE-aware, A-C-E, Adverse Childhood Experience-aware nation. So that we, we, we don't say to people, you know, I live in Govan, a hard-pressed area, where some people have done terrible things to each other. You no longer say, what did you do? Rather, you say, what happened to you? What happened to you that led you to doing this? And you know what, Rob? I've started, when you mentioned I lectured to the military. I've started doing the same with them. 
I started saying the same kind of question to them. What happened to you that makes you believe that violence is the answer? And of course, it's a, it's a very tender question now with what's happened in Afghanistan. They were so proud of what they were doing there. And now, next time I speak to them, I, I'm going to have to be very gentle in what I say because it's no good if I humiliate them. I've, I've got to be... You see, this is where integrating our own shadow, our own darkness. We've got to own our own stuff and acknowledge that. I've got to acknowledge that. Yesterday I was speaking to a church group at breakfast time. They had full English breakfast. And, you know, there are some things the English do very well. Rob, I had the full English breakfast. And then when we got going in the session, I said, so you were probably, because I just arrived the night before, I said, you were probably wondering what I would be eating. Would it be the vegan? Would it be the porridge? And you may have been disappointed I had the full English breakfast because I'm not a vegetarian or vegan. Although I recognize the problems of meat and we're trying to bring it down. And I just thought to myself, if I was a hypocrite, and I went for the vegan option to impress you, I would not be showing you my dark side. And because I have, we can have a more honest conversation. My goodness, you could feel the relaxation in the room. Thank you, thank you. Anthea, your thoughts down on, on trauma? I noticed that when I was started thinking about trauma and activism, so I was asking a question when I was writing The Entangled Activist. I had a couple of questions. One of them was, this question which had occurred to me over 20 years of different types of campaigning and activism, which was why is it that we are so often doing precisely the things that we're asking other people not to do, treating other people badly when we're fighting for human rights and so on. And my other question was about what felt missing. It felt like something, some kind of attention to our inner life, whether we catch that in spiritual terms, which not everybody's comfortable to do, or psychological terms, we're just using that term sort of inner world. Most people are comfortable with that in some sense. Something felt missing um, in all of our busyness. So I was talking to lots of campaigners about this and the question of trauma was coming up. And at first I didn't see it. And some of the people I didn't, I was talking to didn't see it either. They couldn't, they couldn't see the link. And, and it took me a few conversations and some reading and some thinking to start realising why that was, which is that I had been approaching my campaigning from a perspective of privilege. You know, I come from a middle-class family in the southeast of England, and I turned to activism, so I thought, to help, to help others. That's what I thought I was doing. And a lot of the people I'd worked with in those organisations thought they were doing that. And the people who were saying, what's trauma got to do with it, were the ones who had come from that perspective. And it took talking with people who had been doing activism fighting for their own lives in, in whatever way and talking to psychologists who've worked kind of across activist movements including Sophie Banks who, who'd helped set up transition and was working on the inner transition aspect for me to start to see it. Of course the people who have been most impacted by the actions and the, the workings and the machinations of the dominant culture of course they're going to know about trauma and what it does to us and the people who who have in some ways benefited from that and, and think that they're turning to their activism to help are less likely to have thought about it. So that was, that was the first part of it. And there, I had to sort of, you know, get a sort of grip of myself and think about what it was I was really doing in this. And this is where I started acknowledging my own entanglement in the very questions I was asking. 
But actually, I, this is why I really love the way you've written that chapter in Riders on the Storm, Alistair, because what we're talking about here is, is that trauma has passed down the generations in different ways everywhere because of the culture that we're in. It's happened in these islands. There has been colonisation within these islands. People have lost their land and, and all of this has happened. And to say that is not to draw any equivalence with the suffering that people from these islands have inflicted elsewhere through colonisation right. and enslavement. There, there is no, there's, there's no equivalence. And it's definitely an and. And we need to look at what has travelled down the line here because, because what I find very compelling is um, what a number of sort of somatic uh, and trauma therapists are talking about is the way that the patterns of trauma have become normalised in our society. And so even people who don't feel like they've had any particularly adverse experiences themselves, we are still behaving in ways, and, and this is really visible in, it's invisible in lots of ways in the culture, but it's visible in specific ways in how activism takes place, I think, that we're enacting some of these patterns without realising it. So when our nervous systems are, are up, you know, to use completely unscientific lingo, just to keep it sing- simple for a moment. I know it doesn't work like this, it's more complex, but we're talking about fight and flight. You know, we are, we are more likely to see things in terms of power games and dominance. We're more likely to be constantly on the run, manifesting in this sort of constant activity. Another aspect of, of trauma patterning in the culture is, is numbness. It's a shutting down. And it's that shutting down that we're, that we're doing when we when we turn away from something and don't want to look at its impact, when we're feeling kind of paralysed and can't act, or when we, even as activists trying to do our best, don't really want to look at <laughs> the impact of what we're doing and whether what we're doing is the right thing. So, so I'm really curious. And now that I've started noticing, I feel I, feel I can see it. And I'm, really, and I'm really drawn to descriptions of people who are sort of experts in this because you start to see it everywhere. In, in how we in how we run our campaigning and there and there are lots of questions about whether going at it even though the problem is it's so unbelievably urgent there's a paradox here the problem is incredibly urgent and we do need to act and yet acting from that place of activated urgency in ourselves is not going to be the best way of doing it because you know we'll, we'll get too kind of sort of stuck ourselves in that panic mode we won't be heard clearly and we will be activating it in other people which isn't good for them and isn't good for, the, for our sort of chances of communicating and being able to be in connection about what matters. Rob, could I just come in on that? I mean, can I first of all make an observation, which is how, you know, when you consider Anthea's previous work with things like tax issues and so on, she's really built up a strong credibility base to be doing this from. So it's, it's hard to knock somebody like Anthea down when you look at that track history and say, oh, you're just talking woo-woo stuff, which of course is one of the things I'll sort you. And I think that's an important thing because when young activists say to me, how can we become activists and do the kind of thing you're doing? I, I, one of the things I say is learn how to be useful. You cut your teeth doing things that are, are, are recognized as being useful, and then you will strengthen your own voice. And the second observation um, in terms of the trauma we carry without realizing it, I think it's always helpful when we can see things happening in the culture that we can use to um, make that explicit, to unmask the powers that be, so to speak. And my good friend Nick Duffel, who wrote a pioneering book called The Making of Them, 
the making of the men, as it was, who ran the British Empire through the public school, the private school system, and has followed it up with another book. Well, he's got several now, but the other book is called Wounded Leaders, where he's looking at people like Tony Blair and George Bush. He's bringing out the kind of thing that is now coming up almost weekly in the press about Boris Johnson and his set, and the way in which they are part of a culture where brutalization and trauma has been built in from an early age. And that's hugely important to understand because in the icons, <laughs> look at the wall behind me, in the, in the icons that these people offer, we see into deeper and sometimes closer home realities for the rest of us and can start openly asking questions about what might we be carrying without realizing it that affects our disposition towards life and leads us on these paths of violence and environmental destruction. One of the things I've noticed and experienced in the transition movement over the past decade or so has been how questions around inner and outer transition, inner and outer activism can polarise, can become gendered, can fracture into kind of distinct positions. Yet the ideal here is that as activists, we can embody both, that our movements are sufficiently comfortable with polarity rather than the need to find the position and the answer. And Anthea, in your book, you write about a conversation with Andrew Sims where he talks about how the left are terrible at that and the right are really great at just glossing over the things they disagree with. What's your sense of how we should balance inner and outer in our movements and how we can create a culture where we're okay uh, with polarity? Anthea? Well, this is, this is, there's lots of things to say to this question because I think one of, one of the dynamics that's going on here is that the, the polarity that emerges in, for example, our campaigning movements and you know, in a, the inner and outer of transition is, is, is a very interesting example because, hey, at least transition is having a go at doing inner there's plenty of organisations that, are, that aren't looking at it at all. It polarises, I think, in, in our campaigning scenarios, precisely because as campaigners, we're entangled in the wider set of problems. It's, it's polarised in the culture because we have been told for a long time that, uh, so it's, you, know, you can take this back to different levels, but let's just take sort of enlightenment thinking which basically tells us that our rational capacity our thinking cogitating capacity and our sort of using that to go and actively do stuff in the world has primacy and that has primacy over I mean you use the word woo woo Alistair but that's perfect because that's that's exactly what happens we even if we're not explicitly doing that I think a lot of us have got that implicit assumption in ourselves because we've just sort of absorbed it um, from the culture. It manifests in, in so many ways. So, so we're reflecting what's going on. So I, I wonder whether the, the question is not so much kind of, can we accept that it's polarised, but can we learn to move more easily? I think you've talked about this as well, Alice, learn to move more easily between the two so that we don't end up pushing ourselves into these things. And, and this question also of understanding and being more comfortable contemplating the existence of our own shadow, the shadow being, you know, the part of ourselves that we want to push away out of conscious uh, awareness. It might be things that the culture or our families have told us that are not okay, you know, earlier on in life. We, we don't want to know that bit of ourselves, and so we react to it in other people. 
And so sometimes when we're having these reactions against what somebody else is expressing, we're reacting to something in ourselves that we've pushed out of the way or to experiences we've had in the past. And so this is yet another example where becoming more comfortable with the, the, the darkness in ourselves, with the completeness of ourselves, makes us more comfortable with, with what other people uh, are doing. And we can be more comfortable with the glorious kind of messy complexity of life rather than having to even see it as a polarity. Thank you. Alistair? Well, I'm just thinking, you know, it, it's interesting, Anthea, the, the books about the psychology of activism that are out there, they don't sell particularly well. <laughs> and so they go out of print. It's just, just the way it is. I mean, but, you know, I, I've got coming to my mind as you're speaking, Anthea, a wonderful one that you can still pick up secondhand on the internet by an Australian activist called Katrina Shields. Um, she was a health service professional, and she her, her book is called In the Tiger's Mouth, and I think it's subtitled something like An Activist Guide to Empowerment or something like that. It's from the 1980s where a lot of really good activism was happening in Australia, especially around the nuclear-free Pacific and the whole rainforest issue, things like John Seed's Rainforest Action Group and, and, and so on. And... She's got a cartoon in that book that speaks exactly to what you were just saying, Anthea. And the cartoon is, you've got all the activists walking around a square in a circle, and they're, they're all carrying their placards. And it's kind of, you know, save the whales, screw the corporation, down with the government, etc. And, and the very last person is carrying one that says, I hate my dad. <laughs> Yeah, it's really powerful, that isn't it? That's oh. that says a lot about this. Yeah, you see, it, it's kind, it, it's kind of like the buck maybe stops with the government, but in a democracy, the buck starts here, and so we can't separate these two things. We 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 we, we can't just go pointing the finger at the corporations and the government and even the media, without also saying, you know. If I read something like the Daily Mail or, you know, a, a climate-denying newspaper like the Daily Telegraph or, or something like that, that's because it's latching into something that is in me. And if, if, if I start to resolve that in myself, I won't want to read that kind of stuff anymore. So we, we can't just blame the forces that exploit, if you like, the Microsoft security vulnerabilities in our own psyches. We've got to do the work of figuring out what's going on in our own systems. And then as we become less vulnerable to these things, so we'll be able to progressively start to shape a different democracy. And it's all very well to say, well, that's all going to take too long. Because people, I mean, I don't know about you, Anthea, but all the time, when, when I talk like I talk, I'll get people saying, you know, we haven't got time to go down that path. We've got to act now. We've got to fix it now. 2025 or whatever. But I end up saying to them, well, you know, are you going to do that in a democracy? I mean, here I am in the south of France. Varen and I were confused today because the Google was saying the speed limit was still 80 kilometers an hour and the signs were saying 90 kilometers. We we're thinking, what's going on? In 2018, France brought down the speed limit on country roads from 90 to 80. That's 50 miles an hour. And how come the signs are now saying 90? So when I got back, I Googled it. 
And because of the action of the gilet jaune, the yellow vests, with something like 80% of French speed cameras being vandalized, the government backtracked. And the government has left it up to different departments. So some departments are still at 80, others like where we were today at 90, and others haven't decided. But what that is highlighting is that it's all very well to take a sensible measure, like what the French government did in 2018. But unless you take the people with you, it's not going to stick. And you can only take the people with you if you do the work that drives their deepest motivations, which is where the questions you are raising about trauma, Anthea, are so crucial. I mean, trauma, let us remember, what is trauma? It is a Greek word that means injury. Trauma is injury. So surgical trauma is a shock the body goes into after the injury of surgery. Psychological trauma is the shock our psyches, our, our souls, our deep mentalities go into when we've been hit by the violence of the world. That's right. And I think one of the things it changes is, is our perception. And so, yes. and so that, that sort of trauma perception, I think, can help sort of help that that sounds like a positive word but what its effect is to is to flatten things its effect is to polarize because it puts you in a situation where you're more afraid and so you're more you know in a sort of let's think about this on an evolutionary basis you are going to need to make quick fire determinations about what's enemy and what's friend um and and that's the polarizing mentality and so what's very interesting about these questions about urgency is I can find myself talking about these topics and, and people are thinking that they're hearing, they're convinced that what they're hearing is me saying, oh, well, we can't do the activism. You have to go and attend to yourselves. <laughs> and so here's yet another polarity, not just between the inner and the outer, but you can't do them at the same time. Like, actually, you can do them at the same time. Practice is a really good way <laughs> of practicing different ways of being. You can't just sort of make a determination in your head. No change takes root in us unless we go and have a go at, at doing it differently. And activism is a great place to have a go at trying it whilst we're continuing to do these very urgent things that need to happen. And I mean, I think one what, what, what of the good things was, I mean, as, as you know, I'm quite critical of some aspects of XR, but I think one of the very good things is that it has actually been open to the space. It's been open to the spiritual in a way that previous movements and more mainstream movements have often been uncomfortable with. So it, it, it's it's opened up the space. And, and once you start, you say it's about perception and see it, once you start seeing, then that can start to influence your being and that can start to influence your doing. So you're on a trajectory, you're on a roll then. Yes, and that, and that sort of trajectory, I think, sort of confounds our sort of simplistic cause and effect, pull this lever, stick facts in front of somebody and they'll do this kind of idea of campaigning. You know, I think one of, one of the problems is that because of the way that campaigning has been professionalised over the last two decades, and that's great because lots of work gets done and people can be paid to do the work. There's, that's obviously good. But the flip side of that is you have to say to your funders, this is what we're going to do. These will be the measurements by which we will show we will have done it. And it gets you thinking that things happen in that, I'm going to press that button and that guy over there is going to change that law. And that makes it harder for us to take on this idea that just by being differently, mm. something different might arise in the field around us and that that then mm. ripples outwards. So if you're both arguing that activism 
can be a springboard or a path into the sort of deep and timeless questions about what it means to be human, just as spiritual teachers might suggest as well. What would you say strike you as the best examples you've seen of this in practice? Who, where, where, what stand out to you as the movements or the campaigns or the activism that is as close to sort of doing it in the way that, that, that you feel we should be, Alistair? Well, for me, it would be the black civil rights movement in America, which is also so powerful in terms of non-violence. And the way in which some of the leaders of that movement are currently concerned that the spirituality that underwrote the original thing is being forgotten about. And that in a secular, in a materialistic world, you get people trying to do black civil rights, but devoid of that foundation in liberation theology, in theology that liberates the human spirit, devoid of that foundation. To me, that is hugely important. Of course, a lot of that was bouncing off Atma Gandhi and what he did in India. So to, to me, these are the great things. And then there are many other examples since then of how nonviolent activism has brought about political change. But the interesting thing is that unless the deeper psychological, psycho-spiritual structures, the deeper layers in a population are addressed, simply having a revolution won't stick. You can have your revolution. But as Ansia has been pointing out, if the old structures and the old issues are unresolved, the revolutionaries will just go the same way. And that is why it's so important that we work not in the short wave, but on the long wave with this. So that would be my answer. The Black Civil Rights Movement, I think, is especially inspirational. And I would say, you know, read people like James Cohn, um, read, 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 the, read these people and ask, what is the relevance of this to climate change activism? It's very deep. And I have to say, you know, Roger Hallam, for example, although I'm very critical of some of Roger's work. He has been opening up those areas and put, pointing people in that direction and good on him for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Anthea? Um, if I'm, yeah, I'm going to uh, fudge that slightly by not choosing a particular movement, but I think I see something when, and, and people doing this occur all over, I've seen it in lots of different contexts. There's something about a, a quality of being when people are speaking sort of from their own being and from their own rootedness in where they are and where they're speaking from that is absolutely palpable. It can be palpable in people's, in people's posture. I've, see, I've seen a photograph in, in some of the... I, f I forget which year it was from and exactly which city it was. It was from one of the Black Lives Matter protests in the US and somebody showed me this photo of a woman, you know, just in a sundress and sandals standing in front of one of these like Robocop sort of militarized American police. And, and she's just standing and it's, it's in her stance. You can see it, this absolutely standing in, in what needs to be stood for. And that there's a sort of, there's a clarity in it. And you, you, you can, you can hear it when people speak sometimes you can see it in, in how people communicate. And it's a quality that I'd, I'd like us to learn to, to value and to recognise because it doesn't always sound the same as, as the most noisy and, and the most numbers. 
it's it, it's about a quality of being. Mm, thank you. We could go on and on and on. This is just so phenomenal. And we do still need to pay a visit to the Ministry of Imagination. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you my last question, uh, which is that the, the theme of these podcasts is around imagination and the need to build within our culture what we start to think of as being an imagination infrastructure to create the best conditions for our collective imagination to flourish. I wonder what are your thoughts on how we might create the best possible conditions for the imagination by the imagination i mean the ability to see things as if they could be otherwise uh, within our movements um anthea maybe we start with you yeah i love the idea that we can have the imagination to see that we can be differently we, we can we can be different in how we go about our doings it's funny we sometimes have these enormously imaginative ideas about what a new economy looks like or how we're going to solve this problem here and we're going to do that. And the idea itself is beautifully imaginative. And then we go about trying to get it sometimes in, in some of the old ways where some of the stuff we've been talking about arises. So, so for me, it's about, it's about the confidence in our imagination to imagine being differently in our process of going about it. Thank you. Alistair? I think you, you've hit on the pivotal issue there, because we're talking about what C.S. Lewis spoke of, if I might paraphrase, as the deep magic of the world set in place when time began. And so there was a shamanic aspect of this. There was a magical aspect of it. When you're asking about movements that influenced us, another one I could have mentioned was coming out of second wave feminism, ecofeminism. And books like You'll Get Some Still Second Hand, Reweaving the World and Healing the Wounds with these eco ecological feminist writers doing very deep stuff that takes us into the imaginal realm. How do you get there? I spent yesterday in England with a church group teaching a Quaker method, which I'm going to be teaching with my wife, Varen from the Glasgow Quaker meeting during COP26 and also online called Meeting for Clearness, which is when you've got a pressing issue. In this case, it'll be about climate change activism and you're divided within yourself. How do you enter not just into the imagination, but with clearness? And Meetings for Clearness are a process of sitting in a circle of trust with people who ask you questions that take you into that deep area. And when we were doing it um, the day before yesterday in, in Great Huxlow in, in Derbyshire, when we were doing it, some of those clergy, you know, they said in the evening, well, they didn't quite use this language, but they basically said they were still tripping. They were still in that deep imaginal realm that was helping them to see what they were about in their service to the world more clearly. So I think that Entering, learning ways, I mean, this is where the arts are so important too, the, the artists and the musicians, their work is so important because these are ways of opening the door on the fairy hill, of seeing into that deep magic of the world, seeing clearly what it can mean to be a human being and teaching one another these approaches that can open these ways of seeing and being and doing. 
Oh, well, I've still got a list of about 10 questions we didn't even get to, but I think the clock has beaten us. Keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Come on then. We're already getting warmed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could do, I, I, could we do one more? Are we, how are we doing? Are, are, are we all right for time? I'm good. Okay, here's a question then. So, uh, Anthea, I was reading, in fact, in the bath the other night, the bit in your book about anger in activism and the question as to whether activists are always really aware as to what it is they're actually really angry about. I was I was involved in road protests in the early 90s. There were some very angry people there and I remember thinking, really? Is it just the roads? I think there's a bit more going on here. And how unaddressed anger from other parts of our lives and history can bleed through into our activism. So at a time when anger is on the rise and we're all supposed to be outraged about something and social media just amplifies our, our outrage, could you speak a little bit about our relationship to anger? What, and, and what does good anger look like? So I think one thing we have to say about anger is <laughs> it's not for anyone to judge somebody else's anger about an issue that that they are living and anger is is acknowledged to be an inevitable driver of of activism what i'm became very curious about and this was led including by my own experience cuz i used to get really sort of frantic um i mean people would sort of sometimes ask me are, are you all right because I'd get so kind of frenetic. Now, I wasn't working on issues that were about the conditions of my own life. I was working on issues that were easy to get angry about. Sure, it's very easy to get angry about the arms trade and the way that taxpayers' money gets used to prop up weapon sales to countries where they're used against civilians. And, and I lived in Sierra Leone soon after the end of the conflict there and and I knew people directly affected and so that sort of felt like it was giving me a bit more kind of close contacts of justification you know I knew people directly affected um but still I think I think it's worth kind of complicating that question because I had seen so many people in the kind of activism I was doing who were really 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 angry and I was starting to get a sense that it wasn't all it wasn't all about those things I think those of us that are that are kind of pr a bit primed to get kind of a bit shouty and angry and kind of quick on the mark on this kind of thing. Um, we're drawn towards certain kinds of activism. And so we find ourselves doing it. And, and, and what then happens is those kinds of activism repel people who are not comfortable with anger. So it's, it's not helpful for recruitment. I think, I, I like thinking of it like a fire, you know, when you, when you light a fire with some like really fast fuel and it's just going to go vroomph and going to go up. You know, we're all going to get scorched and, and injured there and it's not going to be sustainable at all. I think the best we can do with it is, A, work out which bits of it might not be for the issue in question, which is, you know, it's not something you can just do like that. It's, it's an ongoing process. Um, but B, burn it down a bit. You know, we want some really sort of hot, slow coals here that can keep us, that can keep us going for longer. If, if it is anger, that we're using. You know, I, I don't think it's realistic to say to people, well, no, you shouldn't be angry and you shouldn't act from anger. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. But I'd be interested what you think, Alistair. I'm thinking of one of my mentors, Tom Forsyth, uh, a crofter in the Highlands who started the Isle of Egg Trust, was Landform, was, which I was so involved with. 
And Tom used to have the expression, speak truth to power in love. And I know the anger you're talking about, which so many ex activists are motivated by, but I've become increasingly drawn to the Buddhist critique that anger can be quite a deep poison. And so the challenge is, are we speaking what we're speaking in love? And you know, I, I find that a constant challenge. Often, often on the Twitter, I'll, I'll make a tweet in response to somebody. And then I'll think, sometimes I'll delete it a minute or two afterwards. But, you know, because I look at it and I kind of think, you know, is that spoken in love? And, and sometimes I will just leave it anyway. Kind of fuck it, let it go. <laughs> <laughs> and and other, other times I'll... I'll quickly undo it. And, and I think what's going on here, as you've been so brilliantly drawing out tonight, Anthea, is that most of us come into activism at the shallow end of the pool, at the shouty, splashy end of the pool. That, that's where we begin. That's, that's where we learn to be comfortable in the water. But the waters are the waters of the unconscious and the unconscious of the collective unconscious of our time. So we don't just stay there, but activism is itself a path, a spiritual path, spiritual activism, as Matka Michael and climate change activist and Leeds and I have written about it. Activism is a path, and so we start to wade out into the deeper water, and we start to learn to swim, and swim up to the deep end, and we dive. And, and then this is a, the really interesting one. And I can't fully unpack what it means, but it just comes up within me with such power. We learn to swim, we learn to dive, and we even learn how to breathe underwater. And I think that that breathing underwater is about, you know, I've got all these icons from my mother-in-law's place behind me, but uh, as the psalmist had it, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yet I shall fear no ill. For thou art with me, the great spirit of life, the, the, the Buddha nature, the Tao, the Brahman, the goddess is with me. And thy rod and staff, the, the symbol of power, the symbol of the path, the staff, and comfort me still, carry me through that path. And so to me... You know, this is about knowing that at a very deep level, you, you, you can't kill the spirit for she is like a mountain on and on. She is old and strong. There is something in us that can't be killed. There is something in the world that can't be killed. And therefore, you talked earlier about our comportment, our deportment, how we carry ourselves, our bearing, Anthea. You spoke about those things right at the beginning these start to become so important because we need to understand ourselves, not just in this little narrow moment of time, but in the cosmic wholeness, the eternity that our being comes out of. And I believe that is where the deepest hope for the world comes from, in opening up that kind of consciousness and then working it 
weaving that basket into the world, the, the warp of the world, the, the, bit, you know, the long bits of the basket going out at warp speed. And our job as activists in building community in your transition towns type of stuff, Rob, is weaving in the weft, weaving in the sidey weaves bit. And no matter how small, you know, people will say, oh, you know, you've done such big things of land reform and mountains and so on, but what can I do? And it's, you know, you can be an activist the moment you step out in your street and you, you give somebody a helping hand or a smile. My wife, she's French, living in a hard-pressed area of Scotland. This summer, she's taken up going down to the local park, which the council can no longer afford to weed the rose garden. And she's just been weeding it and finding people's ashes from their relatives. Because if you're living in a flat and you've not got a car, where do you put the ashes where somebody dies? You know, the ashes are there. It's actually a holy place when you think of it. And she's just been going out there weeding. And then people come up and talk and give her a hand. And it's just it's mind-blowing. These simple ways that we weave the weft into the warp. And so, as that book I mentioned on ecofeminism eco, um, eco has it, uh, we engage in reweaving the world. Can I offer a, a thought on your um, swimming and breathing underwater? I find that image really powerful. And what, what was coming to me as you were saying that was, it's a transformation. If we can breathe underwater, we're transforming into something. We're transforming into a creature that can breathe underwater, you know, in the literal terms of your, of your picture there. But so actually what, what that is about to me is we are allowing ourselves to be transformed in the process of trying to transform the world. And that's what, and that's what can feel so, so scary and challenging. And it doesn't help that we've got an idea that we kind of get to adulthood, learn how to be a grown-up, find a trade or profession, and then off you go and you just slowly mature like a cheese, you know? Like, actually, it is possible to continue to transform ourselves as we go through, through our lifespan, isn't it? I love that quote from um, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, all that you, all that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you, and 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 that encapsulates it. Can I just pick up on what you said about that image? Because do you know where it came from? It was while I was writing Riders in the Storm, and I was so deeply vexed, particularly with Chapter Six, the um, uh, rebellion and leadership in in, in climate change movements. I, I was so deeply vexed in, in writing that, and I had a dream, and in the dream, a flooded river, the flooded river Clyde was coming pouring down the steep slope of Glasgow High Street and all part of the city. It was coming pouring down. And there were people in distress with this massive flood running through the city, filthy water, full of sewage and what have you. And I was in the water with a snorkel. And I was helping people to get across because Viren and I, we do a lot of canoeing. And so we understand how in a fast-flowing river, you use eddy currents so an eddy current is a current that recirculates. You catch an eddy current to, to take you back up the way when the river's flowing down the way. So the eddy current's going that way. I was in that kind of situation. And that was where I got the image of breathing, or that, because I, I had a mask and snorkel on. I was breathing underwater. That's where that image came from. Now, what is so interesting about that to me, because you asked us about imagination, Rob, is that a dream is about the imagination activated. And it was like, there I was wrestling with the book 
And from somewhere deeper in myself, I was having not just that dream, but other dreams as well that were helping to guide the process. So one of the things I would say is watch your dreams. Watch what your dreams are teaching you. Learn, I would suggest, Jungian ways of reading your dreams to ask what do these things symbolize to you? And then you start getting a sense of being held in, in the hands of a greater power, a greater depth of the imagination that is the creation of the universe itself. I'm going to sneak one last question in because I'm so curious. So isn't the, and you both touched on this before, but I was like, oh, I want a little bit more on that. So isn't the fundamental issue here that the spiritual is seen as being about slowing down when the crises that we face all seem to be accelerating and accelerating and running away from us? So what, how, how do we find the, how, how do we find the, the point between both of those things, Alistair? I think it's about being targeted and how we use our lives. The spiritual is about how you live your life, how you use your life, how you take this time. Now, um, I've, been, I've lived for four years in Papua New Guinea, and in recent years we've been doing some quite um, deep but sensitive work in, in the two West Papuan provinces of Indonesia. And on, in one of these communities, there was a woman called Mama Wanma, and she was kind of a, a traditional spiritual leader. She, she died a couple of years ago. And we were taken to meet her, a shamanic type of figure. We were there, and there she was. She was sweeping underneath a tree, which in their tradition, it was a nut that fell off this tree and floated out on the coral reef. And the Blessed Virgin Mary was gathering shellfish because she, of course, is a West Papuan. And then that inseminated her and so gave birth to the Papuan Christ, so to the indigenization of the Christian story. So there was Mama Wanma sweeping away slowly with her brush, keeping clean the area underneath the sacred palm tree. And we were there, the, the group of us with the NGOs and what have you, and, and the local um, community leaders, we were all there just lounging around and swimming and sunbathing and waiting for her to come to us. And eventually she wandered over to us. And Mama Wanma looks at us, and I'll never forget her. And she says, sit up. Do not be lazy. You have got work to do. Do not waste this life that God has given to you. And it was such a magical coming together. On the one hand, the total laid backness of spending about two hours sweeping under the tree before she came to us. And then coming along with a sit up. And then, you know, when we thought of it, she had been active the whole time. We were just lounging around. And so I think that what the spiritual does and what seeking clearness does, and I would recommend a, an American-Canadian book, Insight and Action, which again is out of print, but you'll get it secondhand. Insight and Action, which talks about meetings for clearness, strategic questioning, support groups, etc. What these things do is that they help us to slow down inwardly so that we can see that when we do run, we put our all into running to a destination that is going to be effective. It's like Gandhi said, Rob, when Gandhi said, was asked, how do you have time to meditate when you've got such a busy life? He said, well, on really busy days, I meditate even longer. <laughs> 
I wish I could learn from that because mm. I don't practice that nearly enough. Mm. But that's what Gandhi mm. said. And that would be my answer to your question. Thank you. Anthea? I think I was going to say something very similar, that um, the invitation to, to still ourselves um, isn't uh, an invitation to stop doing the other stuff that we're doing. It's an invitation to still ourselves in a moment. And we can have lots of those moments. It's an ongoing practice. Um, and in that moment, we make a, a, a good decision about what we do next. And acting from that moment of stillness can result in a radically different action to acting from the whizzing around, oh my goodness, this is really busy, I've got to do stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really, that story you just told, Alistair, is fantastic. I think I've got a similar one uh, with a shorter quote from an activist called Jamie Kelsey Fry, who I interviewed for the book. Uh, and he said quite simply, what we need is a revolution in our answer to the question, what the fuck are we here for? <laughs> like what, in, in the moments of stillness, we have a chance of asking that question of ourselves. In the moments of mad dash and urgency, we don't. So, so to me, that aspect, I mean, there are other aspects of the spiritual, obviously, which is about connection, including with others, um, as well as the ground of our being. But, but this aspect of it, the invitation to slow, is, 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 is a, an invitation to, to clarity about what matters. It's why that wonderful Franciscan um, Catholic priest, Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R, I think it is, he calls his centre the centre for action and contemplation. You need both the action and the contemplation to transform the world starting from here. Wow, thank you both so much. This has been a brilliant conversation. We should do this every week. This is just brilliant. Thank you both so, so much for uh, for making the time to join us here. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. It's been beautiful. And um, thank you. Anthea, can you just remind us of the name of your book again? Yes, it's called The Entangled Activist. The Entangled Activist, because we're entangled with our outer lives and our inner lives. Yes, and we're entangled in the problems that we're trying to fix. Um, and we forget that at our peril. So important. So my thanks to everyone for listening, to everyone who subscribes and supports this podcast, and to the audio genius that is Ben Adicott, who makes this podcast sound like a party in your ears. We will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.